It's been said, friends, that this passage before us today, Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, it's been said that this passage is one of the most sober in all of Scripture. One of the most sober in all of Scripture, as well as one of the most fiercely contested. And we need to take careful stock of what it says. Would you look at it again? I have actually been looking forward to opening this text with you to see what God has for us and what's so fiercely contested, what's so sober. Hebrews 6, 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. What are some things, answer me this, what are some things that you would answer in your mind this morning that are impossible? What are some things that are impossible? It's been said that it's impossible to hold a basketball and not want to bounce it. It's been said that it's impossible to drive the speed limit. It's impossible to make a window look really, really clean. It's impossible to look taller. On a more serious note, we might say that it is impossible for Christians to keep themselves if God is not fundamentally the one keeping Christians to the end. Again, on a more serious note, we might say that it is impossible for God to forsake His own people. On a lighter note, some in the sports arena might say that it's impossible, I don't know, for the Panthers to win the Super Bowl. It's impossible for it to be cool in Goldsboro in late July. Impossible to read with your eyes shut, to travel at light speed, to stand on your palms and race against Usain Bolt on his feet. It's impossible, people say, to lick your own elbow, and this is where I've lost you, because some of you are going to be doing this all the whole rest of the sermon, or you're going to be thinking about it. Don't be thinking about it. And definitely don't try to lick your own elbow. We'll all gather and do that afterwards. Maybe Aaron will lead us or something. What are some things that you think are impossible? Well, the book of Hebrews has several things. Let me give you a couple of those. Ben just read one of them. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6 In our same chapter today, not our text, but in our same chapter, which is Hebrews chapter 6, right? A little bit later in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, it is what? It is impossible for God to lie. And look at me, let me tell you this today, it is impossible in the case of those 
who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and who have fallen away, it is impossible, Hebrews adds to these other impossibles in this same book, for them to be restored again to repentance. Do you see the gravity of this text this morning? Do you see the quote that I gave you earlier? Not only, listen, not only is this passage fiercely contested in terms of of how do you interpret this passage? And we do want to look at that this morning. In fact, there might be a little bit more teaching than normal in my sermon this morning. We do want to look at the interpretive passage. But oh, let me tell you, this passage is not meant for us to say, I take this view and they take that view and he takes this view. This passage is given to us this morning to consider the Word of God to us. To consider these things that are impossible. I do not take the view that it is almost impossible. The text says it's it's impossible. That these things are impossible. Look with me at the text. Look at what does it say? What does it say? Well, what it says, it's really, it's really simple in what it says, okay? It's very straightforward. It says, if you look at the beginning of verse 4, it's impossible, and then all you've got to do is just skip down, okay? All you've got to do is skip down to verse 6. It's impossible for these people to be restored again to repentance. That's the main idea. It's impossible for these people to be restored again to repentance. And then you say, well, who? Right? Let's not make this more complicated than it needs to be. The text is simply saying it's impossible for them to be restored again to repentance. Who? Answer. Answer. Verse 4. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted in the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. Who? It's impossible for these people to be restored again to repentance. It's not going to happen. Why? We're just asking, just, we're just uh, querying the text, right? Just asking these questions. What? impossible for them to be restored to repentance. Who? These people in 4 through 5. Why? Because since middle of verse 6, we'll actually just start at the beginning of verse 6, and then they've fallen away to restore them again to repentance because or since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Friends, let me just pause and tell you that Jesus Christ died on the cross once for all, once and for all. He said it is finished. And what Jesus did on the cross is perfect and it is sufficient for everyone who will ever believe. And there is no other, there will be 
there will be no other sacrifice than the once and for all sacrifice it is finished that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. You have no other recourse if you intentionally reject the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. What? It's impossible for them to be restored again to repentance. Who? These people in verses 4 through 5. Why? Since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own contempt. Well, can you explain it a little more and bring it home? Sure. Verses 7 through 8. Verses 7 through 8. Explaining it more and bringing it home. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Are you guys with me so far this morning? Very basic so far. Let's go on a quick little journey in Hebrews. I've told you before that this is one of five warning passages in Hebrews. This is not all that the book of Hebrews is about. The book of Hebrews is mainly about Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Stay with Jesus. Anything else you go to will be inferior. No, greatly inferior. You try to go back to Judaism, these Hebrews, right? It's the name of the book, Hebrews. You want to go back to Judaism? I'm warning you, it's so far inferior, and Jesus Christ is the revelation of God. You have no recourse. So there's these five warning passages, and what I'm doing today is kind of saying they should be read together. Look with me, would you? Would you look with me? Chapter 10. Chapter 10, look and listen. Five warning passages. And ours today is the most well-known, the most famous. Hebrews 10, 26. Hebrews 10, 26. This is the fourth warning passage in the book of Hebrews. For if we, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Do you see that? but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? That's Hebrews warning passage number four. Hebrews 12, go with me. Hebrews 12, 25. Hebrews 12, 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. And you could keep reading. That's Hebrews warning passage number 5. We're doing a wraparound. We're doing a wraparound. Chapter 2. Chapter 2. Warning passage number 1. What's a warning passage? 
it's a stern and sober a stern and sober warning in a letter that's written to believers. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, that's the law of Moses, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Chapter 3, warning passage number 2. Chapter 3, verse 12. Warning passage in Hebrews number 2. Please listen to the Word of God this morning. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, Hebrews 12, 13, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Which brings us to our passage, Hebrews' most famous warning passage, the most well-known warning in the Bible, probably. The most well-known warning in the Bible, Hebrews 6, 4-8. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, verse 6, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Please notice the context. Please notice the context, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. Hebrews 6.11 And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises like Hebrews 11 and the hall of faith. How about Hebrews 6.1? Here's another little wraparound for you. Hebrews 6.1, notice the context. Thank you for going all this with me. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible, for it is Impossible. Find one thing I want to share with you here. I found this so helpful. And I'm always so thankful for those in our military and indeed for our whole congregation. And I think this little historical nugget is... Listen to this. One of America's great commanders in the Second World War, General George S. Patton, was well known for cultivating the spirit of attack in his soldiers well known for cultivating the spirit of attack. Particularly in the later months of 1944, the swift advance of his troops stunned the German defenders and played a large role in the collapse of Adolf Hitler's forces. Patton's primary directive was that if at all possible, one should attack, for in battle the greatest security is found in advancing against the enemy. 
In battle, he said, the greatest security is found in advancing against the enemy. The writer of the book of Hebrews, Phillips says, this is Richard Phillips, the writer of the book of Hebrews would have appreciated Patton's spirit because this was the very attitude he wanted to instill in his readers. All through this letter, he has been advocating an advance in the Christian life. Press on, attack, advance, do not stand still. Definitely don't go back and don't stand still. Don't coast, attack, advance. General Patton, the author of Hebrews. Maybe it's not a perfect one-to-one comparison, but it's similar. Patton once expressed as his reason for always always emphasizing the attack. Why do you always emphasize the attack? He said, I don't like paying for the same real estate twice. The writer of Hebrews wants us to advance because it is the only way to be sure of salvation and endure to the end. Don't stand still, beloved. Don't stand still. Don't coast. Advance. Go on to maturity. Let us go on to maturity. And this we will do if God permits. This we will do if God permits. This is a controversial passage. These are five verses, four, five, six, seven, eight. Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. It's controversial. More than that, it's sober. My point this morning is not to say it's controversial, so let's, let's dissect it. But let me give you three common views very quickly. Let me give you three common views. These are not the only views of this passage. I think this will help. I think this will help because this is tough. In a way, this is tough. These are not the only views. These are three common views of this passage. And these three common views just hinge on two questions. How do these views answer two questions? Who are the people spoken of, right? Right? Are these Christians in Hebrews 6, uh, 4 and 5? Or are they not Christians? Who are these people? And what is the threatened consequence? What is the consequence that is threatened? All right? These three views diverge based on how they answer those two questions. All right. The first view, remember those questions? Who are these people? The first view, very common view, says these are believers. All right? In in Hebrews 6, 4, who are those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come? Well, this view would say... Well, that seems to me pretty clearly to be believers. But then they would say what's threatened, the consequence, the danger, they would say this view, which if you want to call it, you can call it the loss of rewards view. The loss of rewards view. They say the danger threatened, the consequence is you will lo- a believer can lose their rewards. A believer can lose their rewards. And I'm sorry, I just want to personally, immediately dismiss that view. It's called the loss of rewards view. They would say, verses 4 and 5, it's Christians. And then my big problem with this view is what they say about question number 2. What's the danger? And I would submit to you, what would you say about this text? What would you say? I would say the danger is not loss of rewards. Do you think that's what verse 8 means? That all this is talking about is that a Christian can lose their rewards? If the land bears thorns and thistles, 
It doesn't say if the tree, if the land bears thorns and thistles. In the context of verse 7, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is what is to be burned. And verse 6 says, they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. This loss of rewards view is associated in my view with those who teach, they would not say this, but I would, easy believism and cheap grace. Don't worry. Don't worry about Jesus being your Lord. Just get Him as your Savior. You don't have to follow Jesus. You just have to pray this prayer. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what it teaches. So there's a loss of rewards view. Let me give you another view. Um, I'm not so interested in the names, okay? If you want a name for this view, you could call it the, the free will view, the second view, this free will view. Technically, it's called the Arminian view, okay? And remember, stay with me here. There's two questions that each view has to answer. Who are these people and what is the danger? What's the threatened consequence? This view... This view answers question number one and says these are clearly believers. In verses four and five, these are clearly believers. A child could read this and tell you that this is describing believers. And how do they answer the second question? You remember the second question? What is the threatened consequence? It's the loss of salvation. It's no, what it is, it's final judgment. It's final judgment, it's eternal damnation. And I, if I'm interjecting myself again here, I'm saying, yeah, you're exactly right on that second question. Because that's what the text makes plain. That's what the text says. We don't play fast and loose with the text. And this view, if I could be an advocate for this view just for a minute, because we don't hold this view, and I don't hold this view, but before we just say, oh, that's silly, right? This view, in my opinion, rightly says, don't come to this text thinking about theological debates. The author of this text, friends, did not write this text saying, oh, let me stop here at Hebrews 6.4, let me just write a few words about the debate about eternal security. That's not primary. I think anybody should be able to acknowledge what the author is doing here is not saying, let me just write a few words about the Calvinist and Arminian debate. Let me write a few words about whether a person can lose their salvation or not. This view that we would definitely disagree with, called the free will or the Arminian view, this view tries to deal very seriously with the text. And they say, look at it. If this is not a Christian, then I don't know who is. Because, by the way, the one thing that defines a Christian, if nothing else does, is to be a partaker of the Holy Spirit. And they would say, this view would say clearly the answer to question number two is eternal judgment. And if we would ask them, hey, wait a minute, are you saying, hey, are you saying in your view that, that a true believer could apostatize and fall away and lose their salvation? They would say, I think they would say, that's not our main focus, but, but yes, that's an implication. I want to respect them. They would say, that's not our main focus. Because this passage isn't about primarily the debate of whether you can lose your salvation. I hope I have not confused you so far. I've given you, first of all, the loss of rewards view. I've given you, second of all, the, the free will or the Arminian view. These are believers, 
And sometimes believers can lose their salvation. And then there's a third view that's very commonly held among those who believe that believers are eternally secure. This other view is very common among those who believe that a true believer cannot lose their salvation. That true believers are eternally secure. And very quickly, this view says, this view, I think the best proponents of this view say, in verses 4 and 5, I told you I wanted to do a little bit more teaching, but I also told you I do not have any interest in this being merely theoretical this morning. This view says, yes, it seems like, it seems like, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, it does seem like that these are Christians. But it also doesn't say anything about they have been forgiven of their sins or they've been justified. And so it does seem like, but at the end of the day, these are not true believers. So this third common view that I'm giving you would say, it seems like they're true believers. Ultimately, they're not. And to answer the second question, they would say, it is final judgment. And this is where I would just pause for just a moment, and I would just say practically, dear friend, if you are here this morning, and you are on the fence about the Lord Jesus Christ, listen to me, and especially, especially if you know the gospel, and if you have been in the sphere of God's church, we're not a, we're not a perfect church by any means, nor do we ever want to claim to be. But let me make it very particular. If you have been in the sphere of this church, and if you are sitting on the fence, dear friend, today is the day to not sit on the fence any longer. Bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and died on the cross as our substitute and rose again from the dead so that everybody who would ever repent and believe would be saved and have a clear conscience. Today, sit on the fence no longer. This view would say, and, and if these are the only three views, then this is the view that we would gladly take as a church and I think as elders. If these are the three views, this is the view that we are constrained to take. This view says, this third view says, there is mountains of Scripture. There are mountains of Scripture that say, God will keep His own to the end. Loads and loads of Scripture. John 10, John 6, Romans chapter 8. We cannot say, we cannot say according to Scripture because it ultimately impugns God. Not just because we like this view, but because it impugns God. God will keep His own. God will keep His own. And so this view says, oh yeah, these seem like believers. Ultimately, they're not. The thing that's threatened is final judgment, but the final judgment would not be threatened for believers. It's for those who are on the fence. In this case, those who are really seriously considering, man, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Listen to me. This, the Word of God is for us today. What they were saying perhaps was, I don't know with all of this persecution, with all that's going on, because I'm a follower of Jesus, I don't know if it wouldn't actually be better for me to go back to Judaism. It would just be safer. And the author is saying, danger, warning, 
Stay with Jesus. And so the issue then, the issue would be apostasy. Apostasy. Falling away from the faith, which a true believer can never do. Keep getting cotton mouths. Can I share with you something? This will throw you for a loop. Spurgeon, who is a hero to many of us, said this. He said, who are these people spoken of? Spurgeon was just a man, but he still was a hero and is a hero to many of us. He said, who are these people spoken of? Now listen to this. He says, if you read Dr. Gill, Dr. Owen, that's John Gill and John Owen, and almost all of the eminent Calvinistic writers, all of them will say that these persons are not Christians. They say that enough is said here to represent a man who is a Christian externally, but not enough to give the portrait of a true believer. Now it strikes me, Spurgeon says, it strikes me they would not have said this if they did not have some doctrine to uphold. Spurgeon saying they're coming to this text and wanting to uphold the security of the believer and that leads them to misread the text. And let me just say, Spurgeon absolutely believed in the security of the believer because of election. He says a child reading this passage would say that the persons intended by it must be Christians. If the Holy Spirit intended to describe Christians, I do not see that he could have used more explicit terms than there are here. How can a man be said to be enlightened? and to taste of the heavenly gift, and to be made a partaker of the Holy Ghost without being a child of God, with all deference to these learned doctors, most of the people that we appreciate, he says, I'm, I'm going against them, and I admire and I love them all. I humbly concede that they allow their judgments to be a little warped when they said that, and I think I shall be able to show that none but true believers are here described. I'm sorry to throw you for a loop. I'm just saying that Spurgeon said a child could look at this passage and say that they are Christians, and then it's like, what? Because he did not, he believed in eternal security. So what? So what? I want to be careful, because there's no doubt that my so what here is influenced by how I see this passage, and I want to acknowledge that up front. But I also don't want to leave us with just interpretive options. I've said already, I don't like the loss of rewards view. I've said the, the, the view that it's true believers who can lose their salvation. They're, they're really trying to be faithful. Man, that's, that seems to be the plain reading of the text in some ways. You cannot square that with the rest of the Bible. You cannot and then I've given the common view. You might even call it the, com the classic reformed view. Okay, If you're interested in that this morning, I told you I'm not interested in labels that much. You might even call it the third view I gave you, the classic reformed view. Here's what I want to say. The biggest problem to my mind would be if we as believers in Jesus Christ would come to this text this morning and would say, yeah, I like that view. It's for people who seem like Christians, but they're not. So this text really 
doesn't have a whole lot to say to me practically. To me, that's the danger. Listen to me, beloved. Listen to me. I look in Scripture over and over and over again, and I see God giving promises and warnings. And God's, listen to me, God's promises and God's warnings are not foes. They are friends. They are friends. So one danger that I want you and that I want us to avoid is looking at this and saying, hey, I got three views today. I like this view and saying, this therefore doesn't have a lot to me because at the very least, can we agree, at the very least, and I am saying we should read the warning passages all together. At the very least, can we not agree, for example, in Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. There is another view. There's actually a lot of other views. There is another view. It's called the means of salvation view. And it says God gives promises and God gives warnings. And one of the means that God uses to keep His people are precisely the warnings. And this view says that all of the elect, all of the elect will heed the warnings and make it safely to the end. We need to be careful to say this part of the Word of God is not practically for me. Listen again to Spurgeon. Why would God give this passage? If Christians can fall away and cease to be Christians, they cannot be renewed again to repentance. But somebody says, Spurgeon, you say they cannot fall away. What's the use of putting this in here? If you believe that Christians could never fall away, Spurgeon, tell me, why is this in the Bible? Like a bugbear to frighten children or like a ghost that can have no existence. My learned friend, who are you that replies to God? If God has put it in, He has put it in for wise reasons and for excellent purposes. Why has He put it in? First, O oh Christian, He gives multiple reasons. First reason God has put it in, O oh Christian, it is put in to keep you from falling away. God preserves His children from falling away, but He keeps them by the use of means. This is actually not so crazy if we believe what we say we believe around here which is that the reason people are saved is because ultimately because God chooses who is saved. But that does not eliminate the use of means. Oh, God chooses who will be saved. I don't need to evangelize. I don't need to pray. Uh, you know, I don't need to believe myself because if I'm chosen, why do I need? That's not how the Bible works. God is God. God appoints the ends and the means. He appoints the ends and the means. In some old castle, there is a deep cellar where there is a vast amount of fixed air and gas which would kill anybody who went down. What does the guide say? If you go down, you will never come up alive. Who thinks of going down? The very fact of the guide telling us what the consequences would be keeps us from it. Our friend puts away from us a cup of arsenic. He does not want us to drink it, but he says, if you drink it, it will kill you. Does he suppose for a moment that we will drink it? No, he tells us the consequence and he is sure we will not do it. So God says, my child, 
If you fall over this precipice, you will be dashed to pieces. What does the child do? He says, Father, keep me. Hold me up and I shall be safe. Jude says, Jude says, believer, he will keep you to the end. And Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Which is it? Which is it? God's promises or God's warnings? It's both. Mark chapter 13. Jesus says, Mark chapter 13, Jesus says, it is ultimately impossible for the elect to be led astray. And he says in Mark chapter 13, watch out. Pay attention. Stay awake. Which is it? Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. There's a terrible storm. Paul and these guys on the boat, maybe it's 276 people. Terrible storm. What are we going to do? Paul says, guys, don't be afraid. I've got a word from the Lord. I've got a word directly from the Lord through an angel that we are going to be safe and not one person will perish. The storm comes. Some of the guys, in spite of what Paul said, some of the guys say, let's get out of here. Let's lower the dinghies, so to speak. Let's get out of here. Paul says, I'm warning you. I'm warning you. If you escape from this boat, you will perish. Which one is it? Because the way we think is not always biblical. Well, if God said to Paul, if God said to Paul, nobody's going to perish, why do you say to the men, don't get off this boat or you'll die? Because we think, well, if God's sovereign, why do I pray? We teach human responsibility. Friend, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God gives faith and God gives repentance. You must believe. We must carry a gospel witness. We must carry a gospel witness. No, what we think by default needs to be reshaped by Scripture. And God, I would say, graciously gives us these warnings that we would not stray away from the happy and holy path that leads all the way to the end. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Certainly more could be said. But help us to stick our noses in the text. Help us to cry out to you for help. Help us to read verses in context. Help us not to be lazy in our thinking. And Lord, particularly as believers, particularly as believers, help us to press on by your grace with the sure confidence that the Lord Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. Help us to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and help us to respond to the voice of the Good Shepherd that we would press on by your grace alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.